Welcome to the Saturday Blitz Podcast with your tailgater crew, John Mitchell and Zach Bogalki. Welcome to the Saturday Blitz Podcast, everybody. I'm Zach Bogalki here once again with John Mitchell after a long absence due to some technical difficulties on both our ends, really. Uh, so it's great to be back. Uh, not flying solo here, but but having a co-pilot to to dive into this week's podcast with. So welcome back, John. How are things going for you? How's life in Alabama? Oh man, things are going pretty decent. Um, I guess about as well as anybody could really expect right now. Just happy to be back here. Uh, things just feel, I guess, more normal in my world when we're sitting on a Monday evening, for instance. I know we this won't come out till Wednesday. We always record a couple of days early. Sitting here on a Monday evening talking to you about college football. So certainly. And it's a I mean, it's a weird season. We talk about this on Monday and oftentimes by Wednesday it feels, you know, what we've talked about is, you know, kind of a snapshot in time because so much changes in these cycles. You know, this week we got a, a really full slate on the schedule, everybody. So we're going to be doing four segments here for, you know, a bit shorter segments, but four segments nonetheless. So we're, first we're going to be looking at the state of bowl games in 2020. We're seeing, you know, a lot of games get canceled. We're seeing teams decide to opt out. And we recently saw the NCAA make an interesting new uh new offering for teams. So we'll talk about that in the first segment. And then in the second and third segments, we're going to look at the college football playoff. It's something we've been talking about a lot in recent podcasts because, well, it's something that comes up a lot for college football fans. In that second segment, we're going to be looking at a couple of power five issues around the big 10 and the pac 12, whether or not a champion from either of those conferences deserves a spot and what that might even mean in terms of the discussion. In the third segment, we're going to switch to the group of five. We have two teams in Cincinnati and coastal Carolina that have jumped through every hurdle in a COVID racked season. And, you know, their cases really help us, get to the heart of what does a group of five team actually have to do to be considered among the top four in the country. In our final segment, we'll get back to what we love doing in that final segment, diving into our tailgater discussions around picking the conference championships against the spread, including conference championships that won't necessarily include division champions. So, you know, I, I think we've got a fun discussion all around coming up here soon. Uh, but let's dive into this first segment, John. We've got bowl games in 2020, a lot fewer than, you know, we have in the recent past and a lot fewer than, than were originally anticipated for 2020 with, you know, new games expected to come on the slate originally we've talked about it in terms of should this season even be played. The first question I have to ask is should bowl games even really be played this season, given, you know, the precautions that are going to have to be taken and the fact that so much of the 
pageantry around bowl games has to be excised for the sake of, you know, player safety and public health more broadly. Yeah, I think it's one of the situations, Zach, honestly, where it feels really I think it's the way to do it would be to leave it up to players. And I think a lot of teams have already kind of done that. Uh, Coaches kind of whether directly or indirectly doing that by taking a vote or whether just by a coach knowing his own team and kind of collecting the pulse of his team um, and deciding whether or not they want to do that. We've seen multiple teams already decide that they don't want to play in a bowl game this year. It's been a really difficult and trying college football season for for every program across the country because of all of the restrictions that have been on these people's on these players social lives and stuff like that preventing them from going home and gathering like they normally would so you know they've been stuck in not a bubble like we saw from some sports leagues but a bubble on their own campus essentially and it's been certainly difficult to do that uh for for this long of a period of time this year so far so you know i'm okay with bowl games being played but i'm also perfectly okay with institutions deciding to opt out of bowl games this year uh you know we we've seen a rise in recent years i guess in um players opting out of bowl games who don't want to risk an injury that could affect their draft stock, particularly players who are heading off to the NFL after the season's over. So I think there's been a less of an emphasis on bowl games in recent years outside of the, you know, the major bowls, the college football playoff, the new year six, some of the bigger non new year six games. But, you know, I I think there's got some potential for some really interesting matchups this bowl season. And it's certainly interesting. I know you were going to get to it about, uh, the potential for some kind of random matchups to be made this bowl season uh, for teams who want to play a game and may not have the ability to go to a bowl game because the bowl that they would normally be tied into was canceled. So finding the team from the comp from the other conference who would um, have been affected by that bowl cancellation, potentially playing that kind of games, got the potential for some pretty fun matchups in that way. So I think that's a really interesting wrinkle, a pretty smart one if these teams want to play you know, one more game to try to get, um, you know, preparations for next season. Cause that a lot of what bowl practices end up being are preparations for the next season. If you're talking about games outside of the college football playoff picture, coaches like bowl games because they get an extra few weeks of practice time, which is really beneficial to your young players, your freshmen going into their sophomore season. So uh, for that way and for player development, it makes a lot of sense. And, you know, so I, I think you'll probably see some teams take advantage of that new, you know, rule the NCAA came up with this year. Yeah, there's a couple of really interesting NCAA rules that, you know, are I have come up. First of all, you know, we've talked about it in the past, the fact that you no longer have to get to 500 or better against FBS teams to qualify for a bowl game. And then, you know, beyond that, we had this recent ruling come out on Monday. Um, You know, the NCAA is basically allowing teams to make their own game that'll be played after this final weekend coming up, after week 16. Basically a make-your-own-bowl-game situation where, you know, coupled with this other rule, basically any team can decide – 
you know, if they can land an opponent, I'm going to host this game or, you know, go play at this site and run with it. And, you know, it does give a lot of flexibility. It does give a lot of leeway. Um, Whether or not that's, you know, necessarily the best thing from a health standpoint in the midst of a pandemic to not have one integrated policy, you know, as we saw a la the bubbles in sports like the NBA and MLS, Uh, you know, we've talked about it repeatedly. It's something you can't completely do in a college environment. And the fact is these players have done it more than we've ever seen before in history in terms of having to avoid the general student body and largely being online and, you know, all of the different attendant things that schools have done to try to keep players isolated and as um, at minimal risk as can, you know, possibly be done in a situation like this. You know, there's two sides of me that kind of look at this as, you know, I understand the fans perspective, you know, from a fan's perspective, you look at the bowl games that are already starting to be lined up. And, you know, um, a lot of the early games through Christmas Eve are every one of them already has their matchup lined up. Um, all, you know, group of five games, but you've got games like UCF versus BYU in, the, in Boca Raton. Um, that ought to be quite a fantastic matchup. Um, Memphis versus Florida Atlantic, I think, has the real potential to be interesting down there in Montgomery. Uh, You know, those kind of games, they do energize and light up a fan base. And I think especially teams that will be slotted into this diminishing number of bowl games, there's still prestige tacked onto that for sure. You know, I I think this make your own situation, it's kind of a, it harkens to the fact that some teams have just had games, you know, postponed or canceled. And, you know, it just gives that opportunity to make it up for a school that, you know, might even just want to get one more game in a situation where you only got to play four or five out of a nine or 10 game schedule. So, yeah, I think especially too, if your last game was canceled letting your players go out on their own terms, you know, because I think there's something to not knowing it was your last game. You know what I mean? So if players, if teams had their last game of the season, you know, canceled because of that, because of, you know, COVID testing and stuff like that, that's got to be devastating for your seniors and your players. And obviously this year doesn't count against eligibility. So they could come back next year, but a lot of people aren't going to do that. They're going to go ahead. Even some of the players who aren't NFL prospects are going to go ahead and move on with their lives. So taking, you know, what could be their last opportunity to suit up. That means a lot to players. Putting that uniform on in college means a lot to players. That's why we love this stupid sport so much, right? Zach is because of how much it means to the players and that, transcends the field and comes into our homes every Saturday, every Friday, whenever, you know, college football is on. And we feel that watching those games. And it's that pride of playing for your university, putting your university's uniform on and that helmet. And I think that means a lot to a lot of these kids. So I, I like the the flexibility that they've been given. And I like, I've liked the scheduling flexibility. If anything good has come out of this woeful year 
across the country. And then in our perspective, college football flexibility and scheduling needs to stay in college football because it's been fantastic to see games just kind of made on the fly, getting the BYU coastal Carolina game decided on a Wednesday to play that Saturday and just a huge, a, a largely meaningful game for two uh, contenders for uh, a high new year, six bowl game, if not the college football playoff stuff like that is great. I hope we can somehow figure out how to do that every year going forward, because that was such a big opportunity for both of those schools to have that opportunity on a major platform to, you know, get a chance at beating another undefeated team and really boosting their own resume, something you wouldn't normally get for a team in their positions late in the season. It definitely opens the door when things become, you know, quote unquote normal again uh, for the group of five to get more creative and to negotiate with those independent schools that, you know, aren't, aren't named Notre Dame to, you know, really figure out a way to imagine imaginatively elevate one of their ranks in, you know, in force the college football playoff committee's hand because I think ultimately what we've seen this year is that's the only way you're going to ever be able to get a group of five team in and that's something you know we'll talk about more in that final segment so I don't want to belabor that point too much here but it definitely does you know kind of spin the wheels and make you wonder do we have to continue doing things the way that we've done them for decades just because we've done them for decades? Yeah. I got more, more to say about that, but you're right. We're going to talk about that later. So I'll save that. (laughs) Yeah. I think this is a great place for us to take a break before we, uh, we dive into these next few discussions about what the college football playoff actually looks like in 2020. So stay tuned, everybody. We'll be right back. Welcome back from the break to the Saturday Blitz podcast, everybody. We just finished talking up about the larger state of bowl games in 2020, and now it's time to look at the college football playoff in particular. One big flashpoint that's undoubtedly going to continue to come up over you know the next week is whether or not the Big Ten or the Pac-12 champion basically whether or not USC or Ohio state deserves a spot in the college football playoff. If they win out and finish undefeated, obviously both of these leagues decided to come back later than the others. They took, you know, extensive precautions in trying to make sure that they had daily testing in place before they allowed football to come back they also didn't bake a lot of flexibility into their schedules, which means that some of these teams are only playing, you know, in each of their cases, five games uh, before the conference championship game. So at, at most, Ohio State and USC can finish 6-0. and There are certainly people out there who think that because they've 
only played six games. They have no right to be considered for the college football playoff. Obviously, those stipulations aren't on the committee. We've seen Ohio State consistently be among the top four. And while we're talking on Monday night, and those of you listening have the benefit of knowing what the committee said on Tuesday night uh, as you're listening to this, Ohio State's probably there again as you're listening to this right now. So, you know, the committee has not been, you know, turned off by the fact that these teams have played few games. Obviously, USC has gotten less of the benefit of the doubt. But So let's take this one by one. First of all, John, if total chaos reigns on championship weekend and USC emerges as an undefeated Power 5 champion and they're the only undefeated Power 5 champion left, do they deserve a spot? in the college football playoff? You know, man, it, it's an interesting argument uh, across the board, and I've got some deeper things about that really as it pertains to more Ohio State. I just don't think USC has been impressive enough on the field to really do that. You know what I mean? Like, I don't think it has anything to do with their lack of games. I think it has to do with their quality of performance. You know, they beat Arizona State by one point, Arizona by four points, and UCLA by five points and none of three of those teams are really that good this year. You know what I mean? Like Arizona, we know um, has really struggled. They just fired Kevin someone after just a woeful performance against Arizona state. Turns out you can't lose to your rival by 63 points and keep your job. Who knew? Um, so I just don't think USC has um, the, the resume not because of the lack of games, but just their quality of performance in the games they have played. Had they been dominant in those games, like we've seen from a team like Alabama, for instance, who's dominated everybody they played, or an Ohio State, who for the most part has dominated most teams they've played, in Indiana notwithstanding, but I think we can all agree that the Hoosiers have been a really quality football team this year. Um, you know, arguably the second best team in the Big Ten all season long right behind the Buckeyes. So I just don't think USC's got the strength of record, the strength of resume to be able to do that. But I don't think it has anything to do with the number of games. I think that's kind of a cop-out argument. And if you're a coach who just lost um, uh, to a sub-500 LSU team on Saturday, I don't think you have much room to speak about resumes because if you were a college football playoff team in my mind you don't drop two games and you especially don't drop to a team like LSU who had all but quit on the season and we had seen qual what they had done against other quality teams like just Alabama the week before getting just absolutely manhandled by the Crimson Tide that's what a college football playoff team does against a team like LSU they don't lose like Florida did. So it's to me, it's sour grapes. You've had opportunities for a team like Florida to take care of their business, and they lost two games. I mean, that just is what it is. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. Eight and two in the SEC is a really quality record. It's a quality record for any conference team to win eight of ten games in conference. It typically doesn't make a college football playoff team, though. Obviously, this is a weird season. So, you know, two losses might make you a college football playoff team this year. It, it, we very well could see that 2007 kind of season happen where, you know, 
a, a team like LSU that year that crept in gets in this time based on something like that. I think you're probably right about USC just in terms of what the committee is going to think and whether or not they think they deserve a spot. Honestly, though, like I think if total chaos reigned and, you know, Florida beats Alabama, <laughs> there's a prelude for the final segment, everybody. <laughs> um, but yeah, presuming, you know, Alabama loses, Notre Dame loses, um, you know, Ohio State loses to Northwestern. You have, um, you already have Iowa State and Oklahoma both sitting with two losses themselves. Um, so whoever comes out in that conference is obviously not undefeated. If USC is the only one undefeated, I like dominance notwithstanding. I think the college football playoff committee sets a very interesting precedent for themselves for the future. If they keep that team out. Um, Yeah. And obviously, you know, as we've seen over the years and as you all have heard me gripe about many a time, the college football playoff selection committee makes their rules as they go and they're behind closed doors. So they can just reverse engineer whatever, justification they want to get whatever team they want into that final four obviously it has to be within reason you know you're not going to see the committee arguing for you know like a four loss missouri team at this point or you know it's not going to be like like some of the computer ratings that still have teams like Penn State in their top 25. It, it's not going to be something crazy like that. There, there's always a pool of five, six, maybe seven teams deep that you could possibly, you know, see getting four spots. And usually the first three are locked up. So, you know, I think it's, it's a weird season in that regard, and it would take real chaos for that to happen. I think the thing, too, is – to me, just basically just looking at how things look, it looks like one spot in the playoffs already locked up regardless of what happens. I would assume Alabama's in the college football playoff no matter if they even lost to Florida this Saturday, and we'll talk about that later. If that game's not a blowout, I think it'd be difficult to leave Alabama out. And then, you know, obviously, if Clemson beats Notre Dame, both of those teams are almost certainly in the college football playoff having gone one and one against one another. So then you're really just jockeying, it feels like, for one spot. And the team, I know you're about to go into it, so I will now. The team that most people seem to believe that'll be is Ohio State. And that's the, been the team that's drawn the most ire because they're the most realistic. If they beat Northwestern on Saturday, they're probably going to be in the college football playoff. That's almost certainly going to be a fact, regardless of what happens in the ACC championship game. Because even if Clemson and Notre Dame both make it, I still think Ohio State ends up as as uh, in the playoff. And they'll probably jump up to the three seed would be my estimation. So the committee avoids another two, three, a third Clemson Notre Dame matchup in the semifinals. They would want to keep that uh, for the, for the national championship game. If both of those teams ended up winning their semifinals, that would be my estimation as that would be the, the case. But yeah, I mean, I think Ohio state and a lot of it's eye test and a lot of it 
comes into preseason biases too, but we know how good this Ohio State team is. We know that they were great last year. We know they brought back a lot. We know Justin Fields is one of the premier players in the country. We know they have talent all over the field. And they've looked better just watching them play than a USC has looked. You know, the Trojans have been scrapping at the end of games. And, you know, no shade on the Trojans because they've become two-minute drill miracle workers. They win games right at the end every week. And that speaks to the character of that team to be able to consistently win games. And, you know, if they win again in whatever the Pac-12 wants to call their championship game this weekend, um, they're going to get – a Pac-12 title out of it, which is a huge boost for Clay Helton, who was on the hot seat, the hottest of hot seats coming into this season. So, but yeah, I think uh, Ohio State beats Northwestern. To me, they're going to be in the college football playoff. And it's hard to argue otherwise, in my opinion, uh, for the teams that are really realistic. You know, what I like to see a Cincinnati or a Coastal Carolina have a better shot. Yeah. And we'll talk about that in the next segment. But I think Ohio State deserves inclusion over a Texas A&M, for instance, because we've already seen Texas A&M play Alabama, and Alabama won that game by four touchdowns. Do we really need to see Alabama and Texas A&M play each other again in the college football playoff? There's a difference between a rematch, between competitive teams, like a Clemson and Notre Dame, for instance, playing again in the ACC championship game. That was a great game in South Bend earlier in the year. It was a toss-up game. Clemson played without Trevor Lawrence. That rematch makes sense to me. Is there anybody out there who genuinely believes in a rematch between Alabama and Texas A&M on a neutral field that the Aggies would have any shot in hell of beating Alabama? No. And, I mean, I'm saying that obviously as an Alabama fan, but we've already watched these two teams play this year, and it wasn't a competitive football game in any way, shape, or form. So I get it. Texas A&M has had a fantastic season. Jimbo Fisher can really hang his hat on that. He's done a great job. They've been right there, but they had their shot against Alabama and had they been competitive in that game, had it been a one score, even a low two score kind of game, 10 to 14 points, this is a completely different discussion, but it was 52 to 24. It was not a competitive game. They got blown out. They had their crack at what's the number one team in the nation and has really felt like the number one team in the nation for the last several weeks. And they were not competitive in that game. So they had that opportunity and they blew it. Let's give somebody else the opportunity to play that. So, and if you asked, if you could get Nick Saban sat down and you asked him who he would rather play in the college football playoff semifinal, Texas A&M or Ohio State, he's going to take Texas A&M 100 times out of 100. And that matters. Oh, yeah, definitely. You know, I, I agree with you in terms of that competitiveness aspect. And I agree with you in terms of, putting in a new team behind them. So, you know, if it's not Ohio State, the you know, the question really does become, who is it? And, you know, like I said, you need a lot of chaos to get a team like USC in. In a lot of ways, it feels like the committee has been sliding up Iowa State and Oklahoma bit by bit, week over week, to, you know, justify the winner of that being their next one in. Um, and I think that really is to the detriment of, you know, whatever undefeated conference champion comes out, whether it's in Ohio, you know, obviously Ohio State win and they're in. I think you're right there. Um, and I think, you know, by the eye test, they probably have earned that right at this point. 
but you know, if you're not going to put in a team like USC, even um, it, 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 it really begs the question of what in the hell would a group of five team have to do to get that benefit of the doubt. And we'll go into that a bit more in the next segment. So again, let's not touch on that too much here, but you know, I, I think the discussion about the Big Ten and the Pac-12, the one thing I want to take, you know, leave everybody with before we go to break is just this idea of what does deserve mean? What is the most deserving team mean? What is the, you know, what does four best teams mean? You know, we use very subjective terms and then we turn a group of 13 people um, loose to, to decide what those terms mean for themselves in any given year. When we come back, we'll think about what that means in terms of the group of five. We'll be right back with you. Welcome back from the break to the Saturday Blitz podcast, everybody. We've been talking about the college football playoff and what it's actually going to look like in 2020. And, you know, this year kind of offered false hope in a lot of ways to teams from the group of five. And we're at a point where Cincinnati is hovering just outside the top five, um, All of you listening will know what the committee said most recently on Tuesday, but they came into the weekend at number eight and, you know, they had uh, the Florida loss above them that will shift things around a bit. Um, Probably still be behind Iowa state. Again, I, I don't know why I'm speculating about numbers. You all have already seen in reality. So we won't babble about that right now. The numbers aren't important necessarily for what we're talking about here, but Cincinnati is eight and O heading into the American athletic conference championship game against Tulsa. Coastal Carolina is the only 11 and O team in the country right now. Uh, having played one more game than, you know, teams like Alabama or Notre Dame who are, you know, the only other 10 win undefeated teams around the country. So we have these two teams here that, you know, have taken on all comers and knocked off everybody that they could. And, you know, at the beginning of the season, they were among those group of five conferences that decided to keep playing along with the ACC, SEC, and Big 12, you know, the Sun Belt, the American and Conference USA all decided to go as well. Obviously, as the Big 12 or, or as the Big 10 and the Pac-12 came back, it kind of abridged, you know, the ceiling for these teams in a lot of ways. But, you know, even now, Cincinnati is hovering just a few spots away from their Buckeye State, you know, Big 10 quote-unquote rival. And uh, it's a rivalry for Cincinnati far more than it is for Ohio State. But, you know, and Coastal Carolina has, 
you know, I mean, they have their victory over a power five team, albeit it's Kansas, but, you know, considering that they beat Kansas last year, they did it in far more convincing fashion this year. And as John mentioned earlier, you know, you, you talked about the fact that they had the short notice game against BYU in a top 20 matchup that kind of effectively, you know, in basketball, we'd call it a bracket buster, you know, and this was effectively the exact same thing. It's the reason why BYU has already accepted a bid to the Boca Raton Bowl, despite having just that one loss. So, you know, we're sitting here and, you know, first of all, we, you know, I left everybody after, right before the break with this question of what does it mean to actually deserve a spot in the college football playoff? And, you know, in a weird 2020 season when schedules are unbalanced and, um, you know, there are questions about how many games do you actually have to play to get in? both of these teams have certainly played enough games to get in. So, you know, I have to ask, you know, do you think that either of these teams have done enough to deserve a spot, you know, deserve a chance? To me, I mean, it would really come down to what happened this weekend. I would have both teams higher in my personal rankings than the committee does. I think where they are, um, especially what they've done with, big 12 teams like Iowa state and Oklahoma jumping them up. I mean, it's like we could, the committee completely forgot the fact that Iowa state lost by 17 points to Louisiana early in the season. Like that matters. That happened. The whole season's supposed to matter. That's supposed to be part of the criteria. And that's been completely swept under the rug because to Iowa state's credit, they've bounced back really well. They've played really good football. This is the Iowa state team that Zach and I have been talking about on this podcast for two straight years about breaking through, right? Like this, this is that team that we've been harping on about finally having a legit shot at a big 12 title. And they've earned that, but they shouldn't be higher ranked than either Cincinnati or coastal Carolina at this point. And You know, I think it would depend to me, Zach. I would put Cincinnati in the college football playoff before I put in Texas A&M, for instance, if it came down to that. Like if Ohio State, for instance, lost to Northwestern um, on Saturday, and if Alabama beats Florida like we expect, and, you know, regardless of the Clemson Notre Dame, if you're looking for a four spot and it's down to Texas A&M or Cincinnati, I'd put Cincinnati in. I'd put Coastal in before I put A&M in. For the same reason I was talking about putting Ohio State in in that situation, because we've already seen what the Aggies can do against Alabama. Let's see what somebody else can do. Let's give them that shot. Um, You know, this was always going to be the year the committee ignored group of five programs just because there weren't those marquee non-conference games uh, or that many of them that we're used to seeing. So a Cincinnati and a Coastal didn't get the opportunity um, to play multiple power five schools and have the shot. And that's ultimately what's going to, what it's going to end up taking, I think for one day for one of these teams to, to break through unless and until we expand the playoff. And really that should have been at least done on a trial basis this year by the committee. I think they had a, an easy out to expand the playoff for a one year period, do eight teams. And then we wouldn't even be having to have this discussion because Cincinnati would be, I think they're eighth right now. They would have been in with a win this Saturday. And then who knows uh, what would have happened with Coastal. But 
you know, I, I know your feelings on the subject. You've been uh, perhaps the group of five's biggest proponent over the years. So um, what in terms of between Cincinnati and Coastal Carolina for you, Zach, which one of those teams would you have ahead of the other? Because I know you would be definitely all for either or both of those teams making the college football playoff. I mean, honestly, you know, I'd have Coastal as probably my one seed and Cincinnati as my three seed. So in all seriousness, though, I mean, not to knock your tide or anything, but I, uh, you know, I, I, I do think what Coastal Carolina or what the Sun Belt as more broadly was able to do this year was put itself on the map going three and O that first big weekend against the big 12 and setting that precedent right away. I mean, that's why you have computers like the Kali matrix and Anderson and Hester's rankings, all favoring teams like coastal Carolina and Louisiana really highly in their rankings, you know, Appalachian State is even picking up points in the rank, you know, um, among their top 25 because that conference did so well comprehensively. Having those sorts of comparables are, in a lot of ways, all the committee has to fall on. And I, I absolutely agree with you. The fact that Iowa State and Oklahoma are ahead of Coastal Carolina is frankly egregious they're both two lost teams they're both uh, you know they're both two lost teams in a conference that went zero and three to the team coastal carolina just swept and became the first team to sweep through all of its conference games to get to the championship game you know it's a really special team there that the chanticleers have and it's a very you know again they've jumped through every hurdle they they were one of the few to actually play a power five team they got their second opportunity for a top 25 game against byu they you know they they came up and and they had their you know their magic moment in that game with you know that that stop right before the goal line and I honestly, I think the Sun Belt, if we're just looking at this year alone, has d- differentiated itself from the American Athletic Conference just enough in terms of getting in more of those, you know, non-conference games that really set the the narrative early. That said, you know, the AAC has a longer track record. Cincinnati is always going to get the benefit of the doubt ahead of a team like coastal Carolina in the eyes of the selection committee. Um, But, you know, honestly, where we're sitting right now, Cincinnati, if Cincinnati does lose to Tulsa, I, you know, it's not the golden hurricane that get that spot in there as we'd normally think the American championship comes down to, you know, as an elimination game. If Cincinnati does lose, you know, the winner of Coastal Carolina, Louisiana goes into a New Year's Six game. I think the Sun Belt gets in for the first time ever. Um, honestly, I think Coastal Carolina, if they win, they've done enough to get into a, a not just a New Year's Six game, but the college football playoff. Um, 
you know, whether or not people personally think they deserve it in a season where, again, some teams are only going to get to the end of their their conference championship season with six games under their belt. Coastal Carolina is going to have twice as many. And, you know, I'm not one to say that, you know, you talk about schedule strength and whatnot. Honestly, where the Sun Belt is sitting this year, the fact that they've played teams like Louisiana, like Appalachian State, um, you know, Georgia Southern, they've they've acquitted themselves against, you know, a, a record that holds up, honestly, against the record that Ohio State or USC has played so far this season when you look at actual you know, um, calculated metrics for that. So I, I honestly, I think either one of them deserve it. I think both of them are going to be frozen out. And that really just, you know, that raises the question, what does the group of five have to do? As you said, you know, I, I'll let you go first. What, what, you know, what do you think it stacks up to? Cause I've written about this enough times that I think people, you know, have seen 20 different blueprints come out of my fingertips on this. Subject. Yeah. Uh, just to quickly w- uh, make a point about the Sunbelt, this was like the golden era of sun of Sunbelt football. This used to be the laughing stock of, you know, power of division one FBS football conferences, right? This was the, the also ran of the conferences. And now they're, I mean, one of the top group of five leagues, like you said, perhaps even the top group of five league this year, when you look at the the top of that league <clears throat> with uh, Coastal Carolina, with Appalachian State, with Louisiana, with Georgia Southern. I mean, even Georgia State's shown some ability. Troy's shown some ability. I mean, it's a really quality league top to bottom. There's been a lot of really good coaches come through that league in recent years. I think Appalachian State's, uh, move into the Sun Belt a few years ago, really just up the profile of that league because people were really trying to keep up with the Mountaineers. And teams have done that. Coastal Carolina's done that. Louisiana's done that. And now there's real parity in that league, whereas Appalachian State was dominating it. So to me, I, I would really like to see the group of five kind of band together a little bit more and maybe leave a week um, on their schedule open before the college or before conference championship weekend where you'd have the, you know, Sunbelt championship, AAC championship, Mountain West championship, leave that weekend open as kind of an invitational, like we saw with coastal Carolina and BYU. So maybe you could have the weekend before the conference championship in a normal year. Like if this one had been a normal season where you could have Cincinnati and coastal Carolina play one another and give both of those teams an opportunity for just a massive win um, in that or have a, a Boise state play an Appalachian state the weekend before the conference championship weekend and give those teams another opportunity for a really big boosting resume win. But it's always going to take in my mind, probably at least two wins over quality power five teams out of conference. And then an undefeated season. The, the issue that the group of five always struggles with is the power five gets mulligans group of five doesn't get a mulligan. A loss knocks you completely out of any kind of contention for a playoff berth if you're a group of five team. Not just a loss, though, a close win over a team you should have beat handily also is a real big struggle for the group of five. Coastal Carolina is going to unfairly get um, detrimental points because they struggled to beat Troy this past weekend. They came from behind at the very end. 
and beat Troy. A Power 5 team could beat a middling team in their conference by four or five points like Coastal did, and no one would bat an eye. So optically, you're never going to get past that as a group of five team. So, But I think there's opportunities there, Zach. I really do think there's opportunities there for a group of five team to eventually make it because you know the playoff era, maybe we haven't seen that, but there's been teams that have come really close in years past. The, the one that always comes to mind to me is TCU in 2010. They were right there with a chance to, before the playoff, play for a BCS National Championship. They were third, if I remember correctly, going into bowl season and ended up finishing number two, I believe, that season. If I'm not wrong, Zach, you'd probably know that better than me. So the Horn Frogs, when they were in the Mountain West back then, were right there, just on the precipice of getting there. But it's always going to be unfairly weighted towards the Power Five. Those leagues bring in the more revenue, and it's always going to be more weighted toward them. So do I think it's possible that a group of five team will one day make the college football playoff? I do. I think it's going to happen. It might not happen while we're in this four-team version, but I don't really foresee the four-team playoff lasting all that much longer. I think we're really heading towards an eight-team playoff, and then you're obviously going to see it because I would imagine with an eight-team playoff, the top ranking group of five team would get an automatic bid if things are done the way they should be. Yeah, you know, you're absolutely right. That TCU team definitely stands out. I also think about uh, Houston, you know, in 2016, after Tom Herman led them to uh, to the New Year's Six a year earlier. Uh, when they come back that next year, they open up the season with the win over an Oklahoma team that ends up winning the Big 12. You know, later that year, they end up beating Louisville, who was number three at the time with Lamar Jackson in his Heisman winning season. You have, you know, they had the schedule set up to do it. Unfortunately for them, you know, they lost back to back road games in October at Navy and SMU. Uh, and, and that effectively, you know, killed any chance that they had there. Um, you know, Houston didn't even get to a New Year's Six game that, you know, for a second year in a row because they end up finishing nine and three. Um, don't even play for the conference championship. Um, but, you know, they had everything set up there. I also think about a team like Utah when they originally busted the BCS in 04. Um you know, to get there to bust the BCS, they had to play three power opponents. Um, obviously, it wasn't power five opponents back then because you also had the Big East in the picture. Um, and in in 2004, the Big, Big East football was actually still powerful. So, uh, you know, kind of fun to think about how that all changes. But yeah, you know, Utah had to play three uh, AQ teams, three BCS affiliated conference teams, uh, open the season against Texas A&M. And that's a Texas A&M team that ended up, uh, you know, getting back into the rankings in October and staying there the rest of the way through their trip to the Cotton Bowl that year. Um, they beat an Arizona team that ended up going three and eight. That's obviously not that impressive, but it was enough to tip the skills, you know, in a lot of ways. And then also, you know, they beat a North Carolina team that also went bowling that year. So, 
you know, they played a broad schedule across multiple conferences. Um, and they, you know, that's three different power conferences that they play. They beat teams from all three of them. And, you know, on top of that, they played, uh, you know, a, a Mountain West schedule that, you know, that was at a time when the Mountain West, honestly, it, it's fascinating that they got in then. Because if you look at the Mountain West schedule the rest of that year, you have only two other teams that finished above 500 in that conference. It was New Mexico and Wyoming, both at seven and five. Uh, BYU was third in the league at five and six and four and three in conference play. Um, all the rest of the teams were sub 500 teams in uh, an eight team conference at the time. So honestly, it's kind of, you know, like Utah kind of got in with an ugly schedule, but the thing is, is you can get in from a weak conference. If you prove yourself against multiple big teams like that, like you said, and I like, you know, this idea of having an open date, you know, this ability to do what BYU and Coastal Carolina did this season and say, you know, I mean, if it was already set up ahead of time and, you know, obviously this season is a weird season in that regard. But what we saw out of, out of that is that flexibility is possible in scheduling if you actually want to be flexible, Um this whole thing about scheduling eight, 10 years out, scheduling home and homes for 2032, it doesn't need to happen. There's, you know, you shoot yourself in the foot in a lot of ways when you do it. Um, a team, you know, like BYU, if they have that flexibility baked in, could easily pick up, you know, multiple, you know, top 25 games in a row. Um, up to and including if, you know, there was a team like Texas A&M in a normal season that's hovering there at five and uh, they have their traditional SEC weekend of playing in FBS or an FCS school. You know, if they really wanted to make a case that it, that's not a hard one to buy out and to bring in a team like a BYU or one of these group of five teams that need to make a statement as well, you have the flexibility to do that too. So, you know, yeah, I, I think the, see it with an A&M because you're not the benefit, I guess, doesn't out the reward doesn't outweigh what would happen otherwise, because Texas a and M's feeling like they're in pretty decent position. Right. They think they've got an argument over Ohio State. And if Ohio State happened to to lose to Northwestern, Alabama beats Florida, A&M probably does make the playoff as the four seed based on how things currently stand. But I love the flexibility idea. I wish other conferences would do that too. So we don't end up getting all these games that end up, you know, looking good when, you know, we get a game where an Ohio state, for instance, schedules Texas, for instance, 10 years from now, but who knows how those programs will look in a decade. Texas will be in a varying degree of being back again. Ohio state will probably still be Ohio state, but that could be a crappy game because maybe one of those teams is bad when we could replace that game by leaving that flexibility and have Ohio state, maybe play another big 12 team, a competitive one, like an Oklahoma or an Iowa state or who have you. So I, I think flexibility going forward in college football scheduling would be a lot of fun. We see it in college basketball scheduling with, you know, the um, ACC big 10 challenge, the big 12 sec challenge. That's fun. That's fun for fans. I'd love to see that across the board. 
flexibility, it seems, is something that this, if we're going to take nothing else away from the the utter lunacy of playing football in the midst of a pandemic in the way this 2020 season is gone, I sure hope it's that flexibility needs to be the wave of the future in college football. Totally agree. And we've definitely seen some flexibility in the way that uh, conference championships or quote unquote championships have played out. So we're going to take a a closer look at those in the final segment when we come back from this last break. So don't any of you go anywhere. We'll be right back with you. Stay tuned. Welcome back for the final segment of this week's Saturday Blitz podcast, everybody. We're going to be breaking quickly through each of the conference championship games that are being played this weekend. Um, let's set aside all of the other games, because since this is a week, we're talking about the college football playoff, the New Year's Six, and all of these other discussions. Let's continue focusing at the top since, you know, it's been a while since we've been back. We might as well, you know, eat filet mignon. It all starts with the uh, Friday night spectacles that will be happening in Huntington, in Detroit, in, you know, in in uh, Los Angeles. We have, uh, you know, the respective Conference USA, MAC, and Pac-12 championship games now in the what let's start with conference usa you know just kind of go in the way that they're actually played chronologically that one kicks off at seven eastern on cbs sports network we've got marshall coming in as a five and a half point favorite against the blazers uh, both of these teams have a loss in conference Obviously, Marshall for a while there was hoping that they could be another undefeated group of five contender in the discussion. But as so often happens with Marshall, they get bitten before they even make it to the conference championship game. So, um, you know, it kind of feels like Marshall's kind of fallen back down to earth in a lot of ways over the past couple weeks. Um does UAB have any chance to kind of slip in and, and steal this one on the road in front of, you know, however many are allowed inside Edwards Stadium there? Man, it's such a weird game to kind of predict because maybe the weirdest score in college football this year was that Rice 20 Marshall 0 game uh, back on December 5th. That was one of the odder results I've seen all season long. Um, Marshall had looked really good all season and they get shut out. They throw five interceptions. Um, quarterback Grant Wells through Grant Wells through five picks in that game. Uh, he had been really good otherwise. So, you know, it, it, it was a very, very strange um, uh, game. And then UAB's played one game since Halloween. So it's, it's tough to kind of figure out which team is in better position coming into this game. I think overall Marshall is a better team. I think they're favored by about five and a half. 
uh, points as of this recording. So I'll take Marshall, but I'll hedge on this and I'll pick UAB to cover. Uh, but I'll take Marshall to win 24-20. I think it should be a pretty competitive game. But I do think the Thundering Herd have been the best team in the Pac-12 all season, that one game against Rice notwithstanding. I think that might have been a, a Freudian slip there because you just said Marshall was the best team in the Pac-12. Oh, I'm sorry. I meant the Conference USA. Did I say Pac-12? Jesus Christ. You did. Like, honestly, you might be making a bold assertion there. Would Marshall be the best team in the Pac-12 <laughs> this year? Okay. Who knows? So throw that out there again? Okay. My bad. No, I like it. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I, I think Marshall has been the best team in the Conference USA all season long. I think they edge out UAB, but I'll take the uh, the Blazers to – uh, cover just because I, I think there's too many variables in a game between teams that really have had lots of cancellations. Marshall looked, it's hard to bet on Marshall after how they played against Rice, but I'll take the Thundering Herd 24 uh, 20. I think, you know, I, I, I think it's probably a safe way to look at this. Um, and Honestly, you know, the big question for me is not necessarily how Grant Wells does, but does Brendan Knox actually break out and have a, a, a solid game out of the backfield? Um, because when he's running well, Marshall does really well. And, you know, UAB, they give up about just under 140 yards a game. And, you know, I think if Knox tops triple digits on his own, Marshall runs away with this one. I think they win no matter what, but I honestly, I think he comes in after kind of laying an egg against Rice, pissed off and ready to show himself again. And so I think he has a monster game, at least 150 yards, a couple of touchdowns. And I see this as like a runaway 34-17 or 34-20 victory, a couple of touchdowns. We yeah, I would have totally been on board that. If that, that Rice game threw me for a total loop. Yeah, I think that's just one of the weirdest anomalies of the season. You're <laughs> absolutely right. But, I, you know, I, I still don't think it's enough to write off Marshall uh, and write off Marshall getting this one handily because, you know, this seems to be the way they operate. If they come into, you know, they've already got a spot in the – conference championship locked up it's the same thing we saw in 2014 from them when boise state got ahead of them with two losses for the new year's six bid um you know it wasn't that they lost the conference championship because they won that game just fine it was that they lost the week before it and uh, classic marshall Anyway, let's move on to the MAC championship game. We've got Ball State after they sneaked in with a win over Western Michigan uh, in what effectively played out as the de facto MAC West championship game. And they're taking on an undefeated Buffalo team who, you know, we've talked about undefeated group of top five teams. I think Buffalo is the one that's sneaking under the radar a lot for people. Um, so, you know, the, the Bulls come into this game just under two touchdowns favored. They're at 13 and a half point favorite right now as of Monday night. A huge part of that is obviously their backfield. And, uh, you know, a lot is said about Jarrett Patterson, but Kevin Marks Jr. is just as good a running back 
out of the, you know, um, is spelling Patterson in that backfield. They're, they're both just gashing opposing defenses. Um, does Ball State have what it takes to slow those guys down at all? I don't think anybody has what it takes to slow those guys down. We haven't seen it so far. Both guys are averaging better than seven and a half yards per carry, and they're arguably the best backfield in college football. I mean, Jarrett Patterson has over a thousand yards rushing, and Buffalo's only played five games, and he scored 18 touchdowns this season. He's been ridiculously good. If Buffalo had played more of a full season, this is a guy who could have easily been getting an invite to New York for the Heisman ceremony. That's how special of a season Jarrett Patterson's had. So best of luck to Ball State. Um, you can't discount how good of a season they've had uh, at 5-1. and one. I don't think anybody really expected them to be a legitimate MAC contender, but I can't pick against Buffalo and Jarrett Patterson. I think um, him and Marks have a uh, another field day against Ball State. I think they both top 100 yards rushing. Patterson tops 200, and I think Buffalo ends up rolling, Zach. I got something like 48-24 uh, Buffalo rolls to the MAC title. Yeah, I think that's a totally fair way of looking at this. Um, you're right. You know, uh, Ball State's outside the top 50 in rushing defense. Um, they're giving up about 147 yards a game. Patterson averages 205 yards a game by himself. Marks averages 102 yards a game by himself. And, um, you know, that's on about half as many carries. So like you said, if you extrapolate it out and give Marks the same number of carries as Patterson, his numbers probably look like that. Like they just have a ridiculous glut of talent in that backfield. And I think you're right. This is easily a three-touchdown, four-touchdown runaway victory for Buffalo that if nothing else gets them a spot in the final set of college football playoff rankings. We're kind of somewhat in agreement on the first one, you know, total alignment on the second one. The last game we have on Friday night is the first of the power five championship games. We have Oregon playing USC. Uh, Trojans come in at five and oh, they've got, as we talked about in the second segment, a really outside shot at the college football playoff. But, um, you know, they're playing an Oregon team that, you know, is, is the replacement for Washington, who technically comes out as the Pac-12 North champion, having played one fewer game in conference and thus acquired one fewer losses than the Ducks. You know, USC is a three and a half point favorite. They'll be playing on their home turf in this game. Uh, this is not a neutral site game as it normally is in the Pac-12. Um, what do you think is, you know, do you think USC has a chance to make a case for themselves or are they going to be exposed as frauds in this game? Yeah, I, I don't think no matter what happens in this game, even if USC won by 60 points, that they have a realistic shot of jumping into the college football playoff discussion. Uh, but it would still be huge for the Trojans to win the Pac-12 uh, with a potential um, bowl victory to come, potentially pushing them to a 7-0 season in a year that, you know, a lot of people figure would be Clay Helton's last. But wouldn't it be just quintessential Pac-12 and quintessential USC if Oregon won this game? based on everything that's happened. And it's strange because Oregon kind of limps into this game, weren't pro 
you know, didn't technically win the Pac-12 North and, you know, lost their last two games, actually, coming off of losses to both Cal and Oregon State. Uh, you know, it's been kind of a rough go, but those are both very competitive losses. They lost to Cal by four, lost to Oregon State by three. So you're talking about two losses by seven points. I actually think we're going to get real weird in this one because I don't think that USC is as good as their record shows. They probably should have taken a loss at this point based on the amount of close games they've shown they've played. And I think that close game luck kind of flips in this one because Oregon's had some, some, um, some bad luck in close games the last two. So I think this is another one that that's, that's really close. I think Oregon's defense gets some pressure on Keaton Slovis and makes him make a couple mistakes. And I think Zach, I think your ducks end up coming out uh, with this win, uh, 34-31 Oregon over USC. I have not been following this team very well this year. I'll be honest with everybody. It's I'm sure everybody's experienced it to some extent, the difficulties of, of following football and really, really getting into it, just with all the, you know, this world that's happening around it. It's awesome to see the Ducks in this game. And honestly, I think you're right. I think they do come out victorious. I, I think they probably, like, this comes, this feels similar to Wisconsin beating Nebraska 70 to 31 back in that, what was it, 2012 Big Ten championship game or 2013? Yeah, 2012, because it was the year that Northern Illinois made it to the Orange Bowl, basically because of that result and having a, a power conference championship ranked below them. So, yeah, you know, I think it's going to be a weird result like that where Oregon pissed off from the way their last couple of games went, just totally obliterate the Trojans and, you know, leave no question at all as to whether or not the Pac-12 deserves to be in this discussion this year. Like, I see this being, you know, something akin to, like, 52-20. Like, I see a ridiculous scoreline at the Coliseum. And maybe it's just cockiness of a, a, a fan. But like I said, like, it, it's been, like, haven't been into it so it's like I, I i just think the pac-12 is doing everything to shoot itself in the foot this year and that just feels like the most pac-12 result possible to happen yeah I, the real interesting question is if oregon blows out usc does usc fire clay helton at that point because of all the close wins getting them there a blowout loss to oregon would kind of prove that those are empty calories that would be really really interesting Fun to think about, and we'll see how it actually plays out on Friday night. move on to Saturday games quickly and, and kind of go through these. We've been, uh, we've been keeping keep people listening a long time. So let's churn on through. We've got Northwestern at Ohio or uh, against Ohio state in Indianapolis on that neutral neutral turf. Um, Buckeyes come in 20 and a half point favorites. Uh, do you think that the odds makers are giving Northwestern too little respect in this game? 
No, I, I think they believe, like I believe, Ohio State needs to style points to ensure that they're going to end up being in the college football playoff. They get a big boost uh, from Florida's loss this past week, pretty much ensuring that there's not going to be two SEC teams in the playoff this year. So I think Ohio State's still going to feel like they need style points. I just don't think Northwestern has the offense to keep up with the Buckeyes. Their defense will keep them competitive for a half, but I think the avalanche happens in the second half. I think a tired uh, – Wildcats defense starts uh, seeding some points. And I think Ohio State ends up running away with this 42-14. Yeah, you know, I I think you're right about the defense. I think, you know, Northwestern has the second best scoring defense in the country. You know, they have the best pass efficiency defense in the country. They're giving up 314 yards a game. Um you know, and they, they do a great job getting turnovers as well. But the one issue I have is that defense doesn't score points. They haven't had a defensive touchdown yet this year. And maybe this is the game that that kind of lock flips for them. But I think without it, you're right. You know, Peyton Ramsey and crew just do not have the firepower to keep up with Justin Fields and company. Um However, I do think it will be closer than a, a 20 and a half score line because I think that defense is so good that they kind of will Northwestern to keeping it within two touchdowns. So, you know, I see this being like a, a 38-20 game, a 38-24 Um but, I think Ohio State does their damnedest. I think they have a couple of drives get thwarted by turnovers. Um, but unfortunately, those turnovers don't get returned for touchdowns. That's fair. It'll be interesting to see how Ohio State holds up against Northwestern up front because we have seen the Buckeyes struggle a little bit against pass rushes and fields take some hits, especially in, game, in a game against Indiana earlier this year. And he has been um, a proponent of making mistakes because of those hits. So it'll be real interesting to see if they can get pressure on him, force him into some mistakes, and then you know anything could happen at that point. Undoubtedly. But, yeah, I think Ohio State comes out the champion. I think you're right there. Moving on to the Big 12, like I was saying in our previous segment, it feels like the college football playoff selection committee is doing their damnedest to jockey to find a way to justify the Big 12. Um, in a lot of ways, it felt like that was what they were doing with the SEC as well before, you know, when they had teams like, you know, Missouri in it, five and three as their last team in the the top 25 before uh, they ultimately lost to Georgia. Um, and the same thing with Florida and Texas A&M and watching the gate, you know, before the Gators drop. Does the big 12 have any chance to get either of these team in and, you know, do the Sooners prevail as five and a half point favorites and avenge their earlier loss to the Cyclones? Yeah, I can't really see either of these teams making the playoff. I, I really can't. I, I think, you know, obviously if things get real weird that they would have a, a shot. But, I mean, a one-loss Alabama, two-loss Florida, they're jumping ahead of either of those teams, I think, um, in the playoff in that instance. So 
I do think um, both teams have really been playing well. It's a credit to both Lincoln Riley and Matt Campbell to have gotten these teams after kind of slow starts for both schools to the point that they've been really competitive. They both deserve to be highly ranked. They, we talked about they don't deserve to be ahead of Cincinnati or Coastal, obviously, but they deserve to be highly ranked teams. They've played very good football uh, over the past month and a half. So I I think, you know, we already saw them play once this year. This will be the second meeting. Iowa State pulled out a 37-30 victory in the first one. I'm kind of anticipating something similar here. Brees Hall had a 139 yards and a pair of touchdowns in the first game. I think he has an even bigger game this time. He's proven to be one of the best backs in the country. Uh, I think Brock Purdy's done a much better job of limiting turnovers and making some plays himself. I like the Cyclones here. If for no other reason than we've been touting Iowa State for a couple of seasons now to finally be in this position, they're finally here, Zach, and I think it would be wrong of me to pick against them. So give me Iowa State. I'll take the the Cyclones 36-33. I love it. And, you know, part of the reason I love it is no team has been dealing with a longer conference drought among Power 5 teams than, you know, than the Cyclones. You know, you could talk about Boston College. Uh, who has never won a conference title, but among teams that have actually done it, next closest is Vanderbilt. And they had a, a, they won one more than a decade more recently. Uh, So yeah, the Cyclones, I think, uh, you know, people continue to be dazzled by Oklahoma and this Oklahoma team is just not what they've been in the past couple of years. Um, you know, getting back uh, guys like um, Ronnie Perkins, Ramondre Stevenson. Um, obviously, they dazzled the selection committee. And, you know, despite the fact that the whole season's supposed to count, they really, you know, said that that's influenced how highly they've ranked Oklahoma in, in recent weeks. I think this is the, you know, the week that Iowa State finally says no thanks and they cover the spread. They went out, right? This is the first time in 108 years that a conference title comes back to Ames. I love it. So, you know, hopefully we didn't just jinx you all out there in, uh, in Iowa in Cyclones country. Yeah. We should have picked Oklahoma's act. We, we definitely should have done that. <laughs> Sorry, everyone. Uh, you can, you can blame us. If, if, if Iowa State loses. Yeah, send all correspondence to at Zbogalki on Twitter. Yep. I'll field <laughs> it. I like the hate. Let's move on to the Sunbelt Championship game because, you know, the Sunbelt has obviously been far superior to the Big 12 this season, you know, just to continue getting Big 12 <laughs> haters out there. Um, but we've got Coastal Carolina playing Louisiana, both teams that have defeated Big 12 teams this year. Uh, <laughs> and they're combined 20 and 1 right now, with the only loss coming to the other one. Against teams that aren't each other, they are currently 18 and 0. Or, yeah, 18 and 0. So we got a hell of a matchup in Conway this week and coastal Carolina comes in as a three and a half point favorite. Obviously this is a close game when they played in Lafayette earlier this season. Um, Top 20 matchup, you know, both of these teams are 
playing right now, I think, in a lot of ways for a New Year's Six berth. Um, do you think Coastal Carolina can get a second straight win against the Raging Cajuns? I know you liked Louisiana a lot coming into the season, so... I, man, this is one of the games I'm most looking forward to. That regular season matchup between Coastal and Louisiana was fantastic. You want to talk about a game that was truly a toss-up and was down to the wire. You know, Coastal won 30-27 on a game-winning field goal. Coastal finished that game with 414 total yards. Louisiana finished it with 413 total yards. That's how close of a game this was when the two teams met earlier in the season. So this is going to be a lot of fun. I know you're looking forward to this one. I'm looking forward to this one. We got two of the best group of five quarterbacks and Leo Lewis and um, and McCall from Coastal Carolina, Grayson McCall from Coastal Carolina. So I'm really excited to see this one. I think both teams are really good. Both coaches, Jamie Chadwell and Billy Napier are two of the premier names in the group of five right now. Both are probably in line for pretty big jobs coming um, either this year or next. So this is one of my favorite games of the day, man. I'm really fired up for it. This just feels like Coastal's year, though. Like, it really does to me. They seem like a team of destiny to me. That comeback win last week on that final drive um, against Troy and then having beaten BYU the week before – holding them at the one yard line at the very end, uh, Kevin Dyson. Like, I think this just feels like a team of destiny to me. I would love to pick Louisiana. Cause like you said, I was very high on the raging Cajuns and this is not anything against them because they are a quality football team. Both of these are quality football team. They're both, they've both proven to be really good. But I think Coastal wins. I think you have another really close game, maybe a little bit lower scoring this time than last time. Uh, 24-21 Coastal. So you got Louisiana covering that tight spread. I like it. You know, I, I'm inclined to see it go that way. But honestly, what I'm hoping is I'm hoping Coastal Carolina covers that spread, and I'm hoping that they make this a really tough decision for the selection committee. Um, so, you know, I'm going to hang my hat on that happening. I'm going to, you know, I think that they're ahead late. They get a, a late turnover as Louisiana is driving and they turn that into points the other direction to win by 10. So like 31, 21 is a final score there. So they get a late cover, but they get a cover. Fair enough. Should be a really good one. Undoubtedly. Well, you know, another good one that was a great regular season matchup as well was obviously the uh, showdown in South Bend uh, when Clemson minus Trevor Lawrence won in the or lost in the shadow of touchdown Jesus in double overtime. They're playing in Charlotte this time, so much closer to Clemson's backyard than Notre Dame's. Uh, the Fighting Irish come in as the undefeated team. Clemson comes in as the 10 and a half point favorite. Uh, do you think Clemson covers the spread that big? Do you think Vegas is being a little bit unfair to Brian Kelly's team? Yeah, I mean, honestly, Vegas is probably being a little unfair to Notre Dame. However, I do think Clemson covers the spread. I do think Clemson's the better team when they're fully healthy. You know, I asking a true freshman to go into South Bend, even with reduced capacity in a stadium 
was a big ass. And I think he played really well in Trevor Lawrence's stead, but there was some money left on the table that wouldn't be left on the table if Lawrence was running the offense. And I don't think we see that um, this weekend. I do think Clemson ends up winning this, and I do think they end up winning it relatively comfortably. I think they're the better team here. Um, And, you know, it's probably for the best for the ACC. The ACC is hoping for a close game, I'm sure. But a Clemson win probably still means Notre Dame makes the playoff, even if Clemson wins comfortably. So I think it ends up being something like um, 38-21 Clemson at the end of the day, relatively close in the first half. Clemson scores a touchdown in the fourth quarter to really put the final nail in Notre Dame's coffin. You know, I'm going the opposite direction. And maybe this is just the fact that this 2020 season has made me somebody who will likely always root against Dabo Sweeney. I, I hear here, like his demeanor um, from his discussions about COVID from the way he's handled the black lives matter movement um, to, you know, his discussion about what teams deserve to be considered or not considered for playoff spots Um, his attitude about Florida State's uh, concern for player health and safety, all of it just in a big ball of what an ass. (laughs) So you know what? I'm I'm betting this game with my heart maybe less than my head. Um, But, you know, Clemson's defense, they just, you know, we talk about the fact that Trevor Lawrence didn't play at Notre Dame. Let's not forget that his five-star backup had absolutely no problems doing his thing. Like he looked better than Lawrence has most of this season. So it's Clemson's defense. that's going to bite them in the ass. I think Kyron Williams has a triple digit day on the ground. I think Ian book outplays Trevor Lawrence and I think Notre Dame not only covers that ridiculous double-digit spread, but I think they stick a second straight defeat to Clemson in, you know, a, a 28-24 thriller. I love it. I, I share your opinion of Dabo Sweeney, so it would certainly not break my heart to be wrong on this one. We've got three more games to look at. And before we get to those primetime games, kicking off just after Clemson, Notre Dame, we've got Boise State playing San Jose State. They're at Sam Boyd Stadium in Las Vegas. It's been a weird season all around. San Jose State, you know, wasn't able to play at their campus, um, really had to practice at Humboldt State up in Northern California. Um, you know, they've been playing their past couple games in Las Vegas and, you know, they've made it to this final hurdle. They got through Nevada in, you know, what turned into the West division championship game last week. And now they get a Boise state team that, 
you know, kind of has been flying under the radar ever since they lost early in their season to BYU out of conference. But this is a 5-1 and one Boise State team that's won every one of their Mountain West games and that comes into this as a six-and-a-half-point favorite. Um, do, you, do you think that uh, with the game happening in Sin City that San Jose State can defy the odds makers and stay undefeated? Yeah, I mean, I, I think Brent Brennan's done one of the best jobs in the country taking over a San Jose State program that has really struggled historically and, you know, won three games his first two seasons, lifted San Jose State to 5-7 and seven last year, and now they're 6-0 this year, and they've got a legitimate shot at winning a Mountain West title. So can't really overstate the job. I feel like he's not a name you hear a lot in terms of the top group of five coaches. I feel like he's flown under the radar. I also think he kind of prefers it that way just based on his demeanor, but he's done a hell of a job with the Spartans out there. I think getting Nick Starkle to transfer in, he's done a really good job with him. Starkle was really turnover prone uh, in his career, at both Texas A&M and Arkansas. He's done a better job taking care of the ball for San Jose state and he's really fit in with them. So this might be uh, me picking with my heart kind of thing, but I just love the job he's done there. And I think San Jose State takes down Boise this weekend. I really do. I think the Spartans cover the six-and-a-half-point spread, and they win this game outright. Give me San Jose State 31-24. You know, honestly, John, I do like that. I, You know, I think Starkle's been a great addition to that offense. He's, you know – He's been a steadying influence in a lot of ways. And, you know, at the same time, you look at what Boise State's done and, you know, their season, it just feels so disjointed. Like, it feels like we've never been able to see them really get solid momentum. Um, Whereas San San Jose State has always kind of hovered there, just kind of off the wings, ready to step on stage. And I think this is their chance to finally get that launch on the stage um so yeah i'm with you i think it's probably a similar score line you know i i think san jose state can win this by a touchdown and um you know the spartans are going to be one of those seven and oh teams that we talk about you know if they had you know it's going to be interesting because honestly they'll only have two fewer games than a team like cincinnati despite starting so much later in the season but let's uh let's shift to these last two games that we have and i want to save well at least in your eyes what's the best for last so let's go to cincinnati first and look at this top 25 showdown between the Cincinnati Bearcats and the Tulsa Golden Hurricane. Um, Cincinnati, obviously, at the beginning of the season was expected to be in this position. I don't think many people anticipated the same for Tulsa. And, uh, you know, Cincinnati on their home turf, they're going to be a two-touchdown favorite. At least that's what we're seeing on Monday night. Um, But Tulsa has been a thorn in a lot of people's sides this year beginning with that you know their only loss of the season coming 16 to 7 at Oklahoma State do you think that they're being discounted and that they can at the very least cover to that spread 
Yeah, I definitely think they can cover the spread. I think this will be a really old-fashioned defensive slugfest. You got two of the best defenses really in the whole country. Both give up less than 20 points allowed per game. Um, you know, I've been pretty high on Tulsa all year ever since I, I saw uh, how competitive they're able to be against Oklahoma State. Philip Montgomery's done a really good job there. Uh, you know, started out, things started out really way, won 10 games in the second year there, but then really struggled in 17, 18, and 19 to the point that he was really on the hot seat, but really brought Tulsa back this year. I think Cincinnati's better, but I don't think they're two touchdowns better because I really think this Tulsa team – um, is really a quality football program. So I, I think Cincinnati wins, Zach. I think it's pretty low scoring, uh, 24-17 Cincinnati. I think it's a one-touchdown game more than it's a two-touchdown game. Yeah, you know, I, that spread when I first saw it did feel really high. But, you know, you mentioned Ohio State needing to put on style points in the Big Ten championship game. I think given the discussion we had in that last segment about the group of five and, you know, especially Cincinnati and coastal Carolina, um, obviously, you know, I've reiterated this throughout the podcast, but we record before we know what the, the latest college football playoff rankings are. But I have a feeling when, you know, they come out on thir- on Tuesday after we've recorded, you know, 20 some hours earlier we're going to see that gap between you know cincinnati and coastal carolina get even tighter you know cincinnati came into week fifth you know that last weekend before championship week as the number eight team in the country coastal carolina came in at number 13 after their win over byu Obviously, a close win at Troy isn't going to tip the scales that much. But even then, I think being an 11-0 team and seeing what's happened, we're going to see that gap close a bit. And Cincinnati isn't automatically guaranteed to go through if they win. I, I mean, if Coastal Carolina puts on a lot of style points against the Louisiana team that they played close before on the road, you know, if they get a second straight win over that team and have, you know, three more data points for the committee, that will be a factor. And so Cincinnati does have to make noise here. So I'm going to say that we get the rare push and that Cincinnati falls exactly on that spread line and wins 38-24. I'm going to be a real pain in the ass there on that one and say Vegas, you know, just gets the push. Fair enough. So let's move to Atlanta, John, for for the the bittersweet finale of the college football regular season. Florida obviously limps into this championship game after their shocker against LSU uh, there in the fog and and with shoes tossed all about. (laughs) Alabama comes in as a team that scored, you know, 50 points a game against all SEC competition, um, which may or may not say as much about SEC competition this season as it does about Alabama, given the fact that, well, None of those teams have played anybody besides SEC competition. But ultimately, you know, most people think Alabama's the top team in the country. 
Florida, you know, coming in, especially after that loss, very few people are confident in their chances. The Tide come in as a 17-point favorite. Do you think that spread's too high? Do you think it's too low? No, I think Alabama's going to win this game going away. Uh, I think Alabama's proven all year to be demonstrably the best team in the Southeastern Conference. I think Florida's got to be a little bit demoralized too, Zach, because they were coming into what would have been really a de facto quarterfinal game, a win and your end situation for the Gators. And a lot of that, you know, momentum's gone now after losing to LSU last week. And I think that LSU game exposed some flaws in Florida and defensively the Gators have struggled all season long and there's been obvious holes in that defense and Alabama's going to exploit those holes in your defense a lot more than LSU is going to do that. So I think Alabama's going to score at will. And I think the Crimson Tide have gotten better <clears throat> pretty much every week defensively. And I trust that defense to make stops a lot more than I trust Florida's uh, defense to make stops for the Alabama offense. I think Trask forces a couple of things. I think he throws a couple of interceptions. Florida being one-dimensional on offense has hurt them all season. They've had six rushing touchdowns the entire year. They just haven't been able to run the ball when it matters. And if you can't be um, two-dimensional against a Nick Saban coach defense, I think that really hurts you. They don't have the mobile quarterback that's given them some problems in the past. Trask isn't going to make plays outside of the pocket. So they're really going to be able to hone in on putting pressure on him and they were able they sacked Arkansas's quarterbacks last week eight times. So the pass rush has really improved. I think they get home, and I think this is a dominant effort. And I'll go one step further. I think Devontae Smith scores three receiving touchdowns and has a punt return touchdown and wins the Heisman Trophy because of it. Bold predictions. I like that way we finish there, John. Wouldn't it be perfect for this kind of weird year for a wide receiver to win the Heisman? You know, if Jarrett Patterson isn't going to win it, I guess Devontae Smith is as good a choice as any. <laughs> Let's get weird. Let's get weird. And, you know, I, I think as weird as I'd like to get in projecting this game, I, I don't think, you know, I think you could probably set that spread um, 10 points higher and I'd still take Alabama to cover it. Uh, given the fact that they've defeated SEC competition by an average of 33 points a game this year, it it, it just kind of feels inevitable um, that this is like their coronation. And honestly, you know, the I, I guess the you know at the beginning of the season we talked about the fact you were nervous about Alabama not continuing their streak of of double digit win seasons. Well, they're already there, obviously. Um, actually, you know what? I'm going to hold off on this question. I'm going to ask you this one in next week's podcast because I'm not going to jinx anything for you right now. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. I decided not to be a jackass this week. I'm getting nicer in my old age, everybody. <laughs> um, so on that note, any last thoughts you want to throw out there about championship weekend, John, before we call it a week and let people get on their way. Yeah. I just can't believe we made it this far, Zach. This season had the, all the reasons to be an absolute disaster and in certain aspects it has been, but we're finally really at what feels like the finish line and uh, just happy for the players to have been able to get here and happy that they're finally going to be finished with this wild and wacky season uh, really shortly. Yeah. You know, like I've mentioned 
you know, listeners out there regularly know that I, I've been hesitant to, you know, really embrace this season even happening. And, you know, as it's happened, I've begrudgingly followed along and, you know, it, it, it's been uncomfortable around my house, my, my, you know, we don't keep the games on around the house like we normally would on a, on a, you know, on a Saturday, you know, normally we'd have three TVs going, you know, watching football all, you know, for 14 hours straight. And, uh, half the time the TV's off completely and the other half of the time it's not football on it. You know, I'm following along, but I'm not following closely. So I'll, I'll be happy for this season to be in the books and, you know, hopefully to come back next August with the situation in place where it feels a lot more comfortable watching football. So on that note, John, I hope you have a good rest of your week and uh, you know, I hope your tie to have, the best of luck in trouncing the Gators. And, uh, you know, we'll be back again next week to see how this all shook out. So uh, for all of you out there listening, thanks again for tuning in. We'll be back again with you next Wednesday with another edition of the Saturday Blitz podcast.